Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Sermon series. We've been the been in the book of Hebrews, uh, and we're calling this sermon series "Jesus Is Better." And today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter eight, verses seven through thirteen. You can find this on page one thousand and five in the Blue Pew Bibles uh, in front of you. If there's not a Blue Pew Bible in front of you, they're on the back by that column over there by the sound booth. Uh, or if you have one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's on page one thousand one hundred and ninety-two. Uh, page 1005 in the blue and 1192 in the red. As you're turning there, just to remind you that uh, in the back we have a few things that we'd love for you to ha- uh, partake of or have. We've got notebooks back there where you can use this to take sermon notes or uh, to write your prayers or whatever. These are for you. We have cards in the back to help you invite people to church, uh, to just be able to hand somebody something as you engage with them, as you talk with them, as you pray for them. You can just hand this to them and say, we'd love to see you at church. And if nothing else, it gives them a way to, to connect more with our church. And we also have prayer cards in the back that can help you pray for us as a covenant family of hope. These obviously aren't complete and extensive, but it's a good way for us to start praying for the church and to remember uh, who we are. Once you've gotten to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. For... If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that as we dive in and explore what it has to say, that you would not only help us to understand intellectually what you're saying, but that we would hide the truths of the gospel in our hearts, and that we will work out with our hands the ways that you have called us to worship you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember, in the book of Hebrews, The author is writing to Jewish Christians, those who have grown up in uh, Judaism but now have come to faith in Christ. And he's writing to them as they're being persecuted, as they're struggling, as they're tired, and as they're ready to give up. Most of them are looking to turn back to the laws and the ways that they used to know in Judaism. And he keeps telling them, Jesus is better. 
And he's shown them how Jesus is better in a variety of ways. In chapter 7, what we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was superior in his credentials as a high priest. We looked at Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. We looked at Melchizedek and how Jesus is a part of that priestly order. And now, in chapter 8 and moving forward, we're going to look at how Christ's mediatorial ministry, that means how he mediates on our behalf, is better than the one that Levi and Aaron had. You see, under Judaism, uh, the mediation for the people happened with the tribe of Levi, and particularly the descendants of Aaron as the high priest. They were the ones who kept mediating, kept praying for the people. But here, we're going to see that Christ is better in how he does that. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the new covenant, as it was prophesied by Jeremiah uh, in Jeremiah 31. But before we do, it's important that we remember and realize why God makes covenants. The reason God initiates covenants is because he delights, God delights in living among his people and in relationship with them. God wants to be with us. We saw this at the foot of Mount Sinai, the heart of God's covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai, what's also uh, mostly known as the Mosaic Covenant, is that he was establishing the tabernacle, a place for him to live with us, and the sacrificial system, a way to take care of the sin so that he can be in relationship with us. So God makes these covenants to delight in us and in his relationship with us. The constant repetition that was created at the foot of Mount Sinai in the Mosaic Covenant with the sacrifices to deal with our sins was not perfect. They had to keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing. Lots of blood flowed. And because they had to keep sacrificing, it was obvious that this wasn't the perfect way. This wasn't the best way. This wasn't the way that God intended. Instead, this was modeling, this was a shadow of what that perfect way was. That regular flow of blood from sacrificed animals showed that the law, us being perfectly obedient, is not able to repair the separation because we are sinful worshipers and we keep breaking that law. If it depends on us to not break the law, then we're going to constantly be at this battle. And so there's got to be something better so that our relationship with the holy God isn't dependent on us. And so today we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. We're going to see the preamble as the author introduces Jeremiah 31 in verses 7 and the first part of 8. We're going to see the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 in verse, the second half of verse 8 all the way through uh, verse 12. And we're going to look at the implication of this prophecy in verse 13. So let's start by looking at the preamble in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What the author here is saying is the Mosaic covenant wasn't wrong. It wasn't bad. It wasn't broken. It was just weak. It was ineffective. It was was not perfect. 
If you look back at chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, it says, For on the one hand, a former commandment was set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so the Mosaic Covenant wasn't wrong. It was just weak and ineffective because it could not bring us to perfection. It always left us wanting. We had to continue to sacrifice. It always left us yearning for more. God's purposes in that covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, were to show his people what the moral law was were to convict his people of their sin, were to establish the pattern of sacrifice, priesthood, the promise of salvation, all that would then be fulfilled in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes and he says, Do not think that I, Jesus, have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus isn't coming to say, those weren't right, and I'm going to bring you something better. He's coming to fulfill those on our behalf and bring us the perfect covenant. There are a lot of different covenants in the Old Testament. This kind of gets confusing because well, the way the Scripture speaks about things, they say the Old Covenant, and, and people get confused because there's a covenant with Adam, there's a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and then this promised covenant in Jeremiah. But when we hear about the Old Covenant or the law, it's mainly speaking about the Mosaic Covenant, the one that was done at the foot of Mount Sinai, because that's what helped people to understand how their relationship with the Lord was formed. And it helped them to understand how to deal with their sin, how to deal with that separation, that breaking of relationship. When we sin, we have to do something in order to make that relationship whole again. We know that. I mean, when we hurt somebody, we have to apologize, we have to repent, we have to repair that relationship. And every time we sin, we're breaking relationship with God. So something had to change. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, that was we had to have bloodshed to cover that sin. We had to have that sacrificial system. We needed priests to pray for us. Because God wanted to be with us, as the covenants tell us, but because of our sin, he can't be in the presence of sin. So that sin has to be taken care of. But you know that the Old Testament people had to be getting tired of the constant, regular sacrifices. And every time they go to sacrifice for their sin, they've got to be thinking, there's got to be something better. And so the sacrificial system was set up to represent the idea that our sins could be taken care of, but didn't fully take care of our sins it's interesting, too, because the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system showed us that sin is costly. For the people in the Old Testament, they had to spend money to come and atone for their sins. They had to give up an animal from their flock or buy an animal to be sacrificed on behalf of their sins. Sin was costly to them. And so they realized that this is not the perfect system. This is a shadow of something. 
And that's what verse 7 is telling us. If that had been faultless, if the Mosaic law had been faultless, then there'd be no reason to have anything beyond it. And yet, there is fault. As verse 8a says, for he finds fault with them. Who is the them? It is Israel. The inability of Israel or sinful humanity as a whole to achieve perfection under the Mosaic law, under the Old Covenant, meant that a second one had to come. If we can't do what has to be done here, there's got to be something better to come. And that's what Jeremiah is promising. The first covenant was ineffective. It didn't make us perfect. And so we need something better. This is the third time in Hebrews where the author gives an Old Testament text to show the inadequacy of the Old Testament order. He did this in chapter 4 and in chapter 7 and now in chapter 8. He's trying to show us that there has to be something better. Hint, Jesus is better. The fault in the Old Testament covenant not being perfect was not in the law itself. It's not like God made laws that we couldn't ever complete. Instead, the fault was in the Israelites. The people did not obey the covenant. And this is important. This is why in Genesis, when sin enters the world, it's such a a monumental, earth-shaping, shattering thing. Because now, we can't walk with God in perfection. Because we're imperfect. Because that sin has entered into the picture. And as God tries to set up ways to repair the relationship, when we break it through our sin, Israel just keeps breaking the law and has to keep coming back and has to keep coming back and has to keep coming back. And even those who are are doing the things to make the relationship perfect with God again are not perfect themselves. We talked about this. The high priests, before they could go and atone for us, they had to cleanse themselves. And so something has to be better. We've been looking all through Hebrews about how the Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come. And now in chapter 8, we see by looking back at Jeremiah 31, there's a prophecy of a better covenant. So let's take a look at this prophecy It starts in the second half of verse 8 and goes through verse 12. And it is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. In 8b through 9, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, what we get here in these two verses is a little bit of background, and it's leading us up to what this new covenant is going to be. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to see four promises that are made about this new covenant. But before we get there, we're we're, we're getting this lead in, we're getting this, this instruction into what it is going to be. We see this language of new covenant. And this isn't the only place where we see that new covenant language used. If we go back to 1 Corinthians 11 or the other places where we see the institution of the Lord's Supper, 
the last meal that Jesus eats with his disciples before he's betrayed and crucified, he says this during the institution of that supper in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that's Paul, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus used this as new covenant language that was established back in Jeremiah 31. And when the, the, the disciples would have heard this, that's what they would have thought about. Wait, 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 wait. He's fulfilling what, what was promised in Jeremiah 31. He's bringing to fruition through his own actions what was promised in Jeremiah 31. Now, we know from our study of Mark that, uh, that they didn't always get it right at the moment. They didn't always get it right on the fly. But we also know that Jesus is telling them that this new covenant that was promised is being fulfilled in him. That's not the only place uh, where we see that new covenant being done. If you turn to Mark chapter 14... Jesus is talking about the forgiveness of sins in Mark chapter 14. He's talking about how the promise of forgiveness of sins would come to fruition through him. And in Mark chapter 14, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. That blood, remember the sacrificial system, meant that blood would have to be poured out for the forgiveness of those sins. And so Jesus talks about and, and has this new covenant language. And the new covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant. It's not, hey, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Maybe if this doesn't work, we can try something else. No, the new covenant is what they've been waiting for. It is perfect. It is different from that old covenant because it is perfect. In the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, as God cared for the people and brought them out, showing his love and his desire to be in relationship with them, they continuously broke that covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was flawed by its nature because it depended on our obedience. And we can't obey, and we don't obey. God brings them out with loving care. That's what he starts with, which then ends up making their disobedience against him all the worse. But as he brings them out, he gives them this law. Let's take a look at some of the things that are said as, as they come out and they receive this law. In Exodus 24, uh, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, and we see more commands given. And in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8, we read this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will will be obedient. 
Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Israel promised when they were given this law, when they were given these ways to live, when they were instructed how to be God's people, they promised everything that you said, we will do. And the rest of this is that covenant ceremony with the blood representing how this is a serious thing. If you remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how when Abraham had his covenant made with him, he cut those animals in half and the blood went down and that smoking pot went through the blood representing that God was the one making that promise. Abraham didn't have to. So here again, we see the covenant ceremony where blood is spilled and the people promise all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Well, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that ended really fast. So we have the Ten Commandments given, we have the covenant given, we have them promise that everything that the Lord has promised they will do. Moses goes back up onto the mountain to receive more instructions from the Lord. And we don't know how long he was up there, but after a while, the people are like, well, Moses is dead. All right, we need something to worship. Hey, Aaron, why don't you make us a golden calf? They have just promised all that the Lord has spoken we will do. What was the second, uh, the second commandment? Don't make any images. Don't make any graven images. But they almost immediately break the covenant. Even though they've just promised that they will obey, they almost immediately break the covenant with the golden calf. That's a fascinating story I encourage you to read. I'm always encouraging you to read the Old Testament, but listen to how the interaction goes between Moses and Aaron when Moses comes back down to the mountain. Aaron's like, oh, um, yeah, I mean, gold just fell in the fire and this calf just came out. I don't know how Moses or how Aaron could say that with a straight face. I just, wow. But the people want a golden calf. And some of this has to do with the fact that they've just come out of Egypt where all they saw were idols. And it's interesting because you know what the name of that golden calf was? Yahweh. They made the golden calf to represent God, even though God had just said, don't make any idols. And they sin and they break the covenant. That's not all. That same group of people, that same generation, didn't make it into the promised land because as they step foot next to the promised land, they send the spies in, the spies come back, they're like, ah, there's a lot of people in there. Except for the two obedient spies, and the people don't believe that God can bring them in, and so then they wander the desert and die off. We looked at that. We looked at how Psalm 95 talks about that. The book of Judges is an excellent example of this. So they finally do get in. That next generation gets into the promised land. We see Joshua conquering the promised land, the land distributed. And then the next book in Scripture is Judges, and we see uh, this, this hills and troughs, hills and troughs. They obey the Lord, and then all of a sudden they start to not obey the Lord. And, and they, God sends people to conquer them. They're like, help, 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 help. And then God sends a judge, and he fixes things, and they obey the Lord. And then very quickly in the next chapter, they do it again. It just goes over and over and over again. And if you look at the end of Judges, the very, very last verse of Judges, Judges 21, 25, basically summarizes the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And I don't know about you, but if I did everything that I thought that I wanted to do, this would not be a good thing. I have the ability to stop doing some of the things that I desire to do, but at that point in time, everybody was doing whatever they thought was right. Again, they've promised, we will do whatever you say, but they sin again and again and again. And at the time that this promise by Jeremiah is made, at the time that this new covenant prophecy is made, the book of Jeremiah is a book of weeping. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he's crying out because both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, have been banished from the promised land because of their disobedience of the covenant. If you look in Deuteronomy 28, you can see the curses of not obeying God's covenants, which they did not do. One of those is exile. And we know that this is true because in Jeremiah chapter 2, we see him repeating those curses, explaining basically why they were sent out of the land, the promised land, the land that defined who they were. And so the Mosaic covenant, the original covenant, was not perfect because God's people kept breaking it. And so Jeremiah is bringing this prophecy of a new covenant, something that will be better. And in verses 10 through 12, we see that there are four promises given to us of this new covenant. And the first promise we see in verse 10, we actually see the first two in verse 10, is God will write his law on our hearts. Verse 10, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law in, laws into their minds and write it on their hearts. How is the Old Testament law written? It was written on stone, on the stone tablets that sit in the altar. But now God says, I will write this law on their hearts. This sounds a little weird. It, it, it doesn't always make sense to us. And so what does Scripture have to say about this? How can we better understand this? Paul interprets this concept of having the law written on our hearts in 2 Corinthians in light of the Holy Spirit's work at sanctifying us, at, at, at changing our affections and desires to becoming more and more like God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 say this, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you, should, and you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of of human hearts. Paul is saying that this idea of the law being written on our hearts shows that the Holy Spirit is working in us, changing us. We call this sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ every day. And then chapter or verse 10 goes on to give us a second promise. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This appears often in Scripture. Exodus 6, Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 24, Ezekiel 11, all throughout Scripture we keep hearing this phrase, because God loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. Some of the harshest words in the Old Testament are where God says, they are not my people. That's hard. God wants to be in relationship. God wants to, wants to love us and, and be with us. But because of our sin, we separate ourselves from him. 
And so we need something that's going to work because this old covenant, this Mosaic law is not working. And so the new covenant, which we have already talked about, was secured by oath to Abraham and it was secured by the appointment of Christ is a better covenant. We've seen that already multiple times. It's a better covenant, which means if the new covenant is a better covenant, and in the old covenant, our relationship kept getting broken and broken and broken because of our sin, the new covenant has to fix that. Has to fix the bond between God and his people and make it unbreakable because it doesn't rely on us anymore. Instead, it relies on Jesus. Jesus is what makes this new covenant so much better. No longer is on us and the things that we do or don't do. It's on Jesus and his perfect fulfillment of the law. And because of Jesus, because it's based on Jesus, the bond between us will not be broken. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we're not going to sin anymore. But that means that Jesus has dealt with that sin. The third promise made in this section comes in verse 11. All God's people from least to greatest will know him. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now this particular text has to be understood in light of what the old covenant meant when it meant knowing God. The role the priests played was not just of sacrifice, but of teaching the people. We go back to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 8 through 10, and we read this. And of Levi, he's talking about all the different tribes. Levi is the tribe that will become the priests. He said, give to Levi your Thuman and your Ermin to your godly one whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They the Levites, the priests, shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. And they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on the offertory. And so we see that the priests are meant to teach Israel about God's law. But not only that, the priests also preserve God's law taught Allowed. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13, we see that they are supposed to read God's law aloud, helping the people, not just the adults, but also the children, to understand what it is that God has taught. Moses wrote this law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the, time, at the set time and the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that you will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of the law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess so the priests under the Mosaic law were the ones who taught the law, the ones who preserved the law, the ones who read the law out loud 
Access to God was limited because the priests were the ones who not only had the law, but also the ones who dealt with the sin. The priests were the ones who ministered in the holy place. And the high priest was the only one who could go into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. But here in verse 11, we see that all of God's people will know God. These restrictions of the priests showed that the way to the holy places, as we're going to read about in Hebrews 9, was not yet for all people. Instead, it was only open to the priests who represented God to the people and the people to God. They were the intercessor on our behalf. When we brought prayers to the priests, they would burn incense that would go up to God. When we sinned, they would sacrifice and shed that blood to go up to God. Depending on the type of sacrifice, the priests would even eat it with the people. If it's a fellowship or a meal sacrifice, the priests were the ones who represented God to the people and the people to God. But this separation between us and God is not the best way. Instead, we need someone who will bring us into the presence of God. And that's what Jesus does. The law will be written on our hearts. We will be God's people. And all of us, from the least to the greatest, will know God. Now just as a side note, this doesn't imply that there no longer need to be teachers or leaders because we all know God and we're all good. In fact, in Hebrews itself, in chapter 13, we see that the author speaks directly to leaders. What this does imply is that now, as God's people, we have access to God in a way that the people under the Mosaic Law did not. You remember when Christ died, what happened in the temple, the curtain tore from the top to the bottom, representing that the the curtain was the representation of the separation between us and God. Now we have access to God. We enjoy the privilege of God's Word. We can all read God's word in our own language. That's a new thing. I know 600 years doesn't feel new, but it is in the scope of history. We can read it in our own words. And not only that, but we have the joy of having the Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us, to guide us, to train us. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything that is true and is no lie, just as has taught you, you abide in him. The Holy Spirit helps us as we read the word of God so that we have access to him and understand the Lord. The third promise is that we shall know God. And then finally in verse 12, we get the fourth promise, that God will be merciful towards our iniquities, that he'll forgive us, and that he'll remember our sins no more. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful towards your iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is glorious. This is incredible. This is not something we can do or something that we could ever do. Instead, God shows His merciful character. We continue to sin. And if we were under the Mosaic Law, we would continue to have to sacrifice. But because of Jesus, that relationship, those sins are dealt with. Our sins are forgiven. And our sins are not kept track of. Jesus has paid for them. This word merciful means turning aside God's wrath from the guilty through the forgiveness of sins. It's got the same root as what the words propitiation that we see elsewhere. God is 
merciful. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 shows people that are living under the Mosaic law, that are living under the constant sacrifices, the constant atonement being made every year on the Day of Atonement, the regular broken system that one is coming that will be better. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jeremiah's prophecy is about Jesus. Jesus fulfills those things. So Jeremiah's prophecy gives us these four promises, but what does it mean to us? What is the implication that we pull from that? Let's look at verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant to the people under the old covenant who are suffering and laboring under its restrictions. Jeremiah gives hope. Remember, the context of Jeremiah is that the the northern and southern kingdoms have been sent off into uh, exile, and Jeremiah is weeping because the people aren't in the promised land. He's weeping because of the sins, the way they have broken relationship with God. He's weeping because of their brokenness. And they have to be thinking at this point, is this it? Did we blow it? Did we miss our shot? And Jeremiah is saying, all these things are worth weeping over. But you didn't miss your shot. There is hope. There's a new covenant that is coming. And when it comes, this old covenant that you're under that is broken will become obsolete. Will no longer be needed. And for an audience, the audience of Hebrews that is struggling with persecution, with fatigue, an audience that just wants to give up, and go back to Judaism, which would be without Jesus. The author of Hebrews is pointing out that the old covenant, the one they went under, the, the one they want to go back to, the one they grew up under, is defunct, is obsolete, is finished, and is broken. And only this new covenant under Jesus is better. And not only that, but if that old covenant is obsolete and is fading away, they don't even have anything to go back to. See, now that Jesus has come, now that the new covenant is here, that is the only way. Jesus is the only way. And it doesn't just go for the audience of Hebrews. It goes for us too. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't say the free gift of life is sacrifices over and over again, and atonements and prayers of the priests. All that is taken care of. Jesus is better. And this new covenant that Jesus brings with the gospel gives us those four promises that God will write the law on our hearts, that God will be with us and we will be his people, that all of God's people will know him, and that God will be merciful towards us, forgive our sins, and remember us no more. That gospel is utterly glorious and gracious and wonderful, and so much better. 
That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Don't go back to the broken, obsolete, fading away covenant. Jesus is better. Dave McWilliams in his commentary on this section makes six contrasts between the law or the Mosaic covenant and Jesus. Number one, the law requires perfect obedience. The gospel sees us as helpless and condemned. We are righteous only by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Number two, the law shows us what we ought to be. The gospel actually changes us. This is important because when we see these commands, these imperatives in Scripture, you know, do these things, don't do these things, we can't do that on our own. We don't have the power to do that. But the gospel changes us and enables us to glorify the Lord. Number three, the gospel says do and live. I'm sorry, the law says do and live. The gospel says it is done. What a glorious promise. Under the law, keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. Hope you're doing enough. And that lets you live. Under the gospel, it's done. Number four, the law promises life upon obedience. The gospel promises life to the ungodly upon the obedience of Jesus for us. Not up to us. That's why Psalm says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. We're not going to be the ones that save ourselves. Only the Lord does that. Number five, the law condemns and cannot justify. The gospel justifies. It cannot condemn the sinner who believes in Jesus. Rather, it declares not guilty and positively righteous. The law condemns, the gospel doesn't. And finally, number six, the law aggravates sin. It rouses sin. The gospel renews our hearts. In the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament people are making such a wreck of God's promises that Jeremiah weeps because they've been exiled out of the promised land. And in the midst of that exile, in the midst of that weeping, in the midst of all of the terrible things that God's people have done to get them kicked out of their own land, Jeremiah says, you deserve that, but your hope is not gone. You have hope because a new covenant is coming. One that is our hope, one that is fulfilled in Jesus, one that gives us all that the old covenant couldn't. So the author of Hebrews says, just like that hope was promised in the Old Testament, Jesus is the one who brought that hope. Jesus is the one who fulfilled that hope. Jesus is the one who gave us those four promises. And so as we think about the gospel, as we think about the difference between law and gospel, between obedience and grace, depending on our salvation, as we look at the four promises given to us through that new covenant. We have to ask ourselves, are we taking those for granted? 
You see, the Old Testament people who had been under the Mosaic law of continuously sacrificing and continuously sacrificing and continuously sacrificing and, and almost never being enough and never, never, never f- knowing that this wasn't it. When Jesus comes, they're like, yes, he is better. But as Hebrews shows us, it's, when we get under persecution, when we get under strife, when we get tired, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to take for granted the idea of the gospel. It's easy to assume that we're fine because we're forgiven and we're cleansed. It's easy for us to take the things that Jesus did and make them trivial. And so I think this text challenges us to take some time to reflect on what does it mean that we have a deep cleansing from sin? What does it mean that we have open access to God? What does it mean that we are completely forgiven? And as we meditate on those things, Lord willing, we will be driven to our knees, praising, honoring, and glorifying the Lord who gave us what we could not do on our own. Charles Spurgeon told a story that helps to demonstrate some of this. He was given a really expensive walking stick. It was made of ebony. It had a gold head. had California quartz worked all throughout it. And it was a really costly gift, something that he treasured because not only was it costly, but it was given to him as a gift from a friend. And one night a thief broke into his house and stole that walking stick. You can imagine with gold and jewels on it, it would be a very tempting target for a thief. And that stick, which was precious to Spurgeon, for him was just a quick buck. The thief took the part of the stick to the pawnbroker because he had broken the head off to try and get the most money out of it. And as the pawnbroker looked at it, the thief had tried to hammer out Spurgeon's name in the gold because when the friend had given the stick to Spurgeon, he had had Spurgeon written in the gold. And so the thief, you know, obviously recognizing it, this is a name, I just want the money, and tried to beat that name out. But he couldn't do it. The shop owner recognized what it was. The thief started to run. And so Spurgeon got his gold stick back. And Spurgeon said, though the man had hammered it, there was my name. And the gold was bound to come back to me. And so it did. And then Spurgeon said this, Now when the Lord once writes his name in your heart, he writes his law within you. And though the devil may batter you, God will claim you as his own. Temptation and sin may assail you, but the law of the Lord is in your heart. You shall not give way to sin. You shall resist it. You shall be be preserved. You shall be kept for you are the Lord's. What a glorious illustration of exactly what this new covenant gives us. We are God's. And so brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who is better, the one who assured our salvation through the new covenant. Don't take your salvation for granted. And worship the one who has done all of this for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have 
drawn us into your presence. We thank you that though the old covenant, uh, the oh, the Mosaic law was not perfect, you provided us a perfect covenant. You provided us with Jesus. You made the promise that you will write your law on our hearts. You made the promise that you will be our God and we will be your people. You made the promise that all of us as your people will know you. And you made the promise that you'll be merciful towards us, forgiving our sins and remembering us no more. So Father, as we have seen the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 come to fruition in Jesus, help us not to forget these truths. Help us to worship you in joy and in thanksgiving. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.